0: in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11 as you're returning there I will read chapters 1 through 19 then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff and someone said get up measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and the tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life of God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And when they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them, and in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tent of the city fell, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake quake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the god of heaven the second woe is past behold the third woe is coming then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and he will reign forever and ever and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before god fell on their faces and worshiped god saying we give thanks to you Our Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign and the nations were enraged and your wrath came and there came a time... For the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, the saints, and those who fear your name. The small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in the temple, and there were flashes of lightning, and sounds and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. This is the word of God. We need to approach this particular chapter with great humility. It is an awesome chapter. I know you're reading it and maybe you're thinking, what in the world is going on here? This is an utterly and absolutely awesome passage of Scripture. It is one that is much discussed. It is one that is much studied. Unlike chapter 10, you you'll recall last week when we said in chapter 10, we said that it might be the chapter in Revelation that is easily overlooked. There are no... Great explosions or huge mysteries to be uncovered for the most part. Chapter 11 stands in contrast to that, to chapter 10, in that it is much discussed. It is much questioned. It is studied in great detail. And I will say one of the reasons why is because it is extremely complex. It is not only difficult, but it is complex. Now, as we go through this, you—I need to remind you of my approach to the Book of Revelation. It is crucial when we come to chapter eleven. You will understand that my uh, recall that my approach to, to the Book of Revelation is a symbolic approach. That is, I take most of what is being said in the book of Revelation symbolically, not literally. So when we get into these two witnesses, I will not say that there will be two men who actually breathe fire out of their mouths. I'm going to take that symbolically. I take the whole chapter symbolically. Now, many may say, or even in many in some degree rightly say that the danger of understanding things symbolically is that you can attach a meaning to a symbolic meaning to anything and make the text say whatever it is you would like it to say and that is certainly a danger to the approach of a symbolic understanding of scripture um, and, and I'm aware of that however when we take things symbolically we are not required to simply attach whatever meaning we want to it. We, it is certainly a danger, it is a threat, but it is one that if we are aware of, we can avoid. For instance, I think a great uh, passage of scripture which we might use as illustration is we read in the psalm that God says, I will take you in my talons and I will cover you under my wings. I do not take that literally. I don't think that God's a bird, okay? I take it symbolically. It's poetry, I don't think anybody in here Takes that as meaning God is a bird So we say that that's symbolic That it's describing God In his protective care it, the, the language points to a reality behind it And so we will do the same thing When we come to the book of Revelation We are taking it symbolically We are understanding the symbols We are understanding that there is a reality Behind the symbols So how do we discover the reality Behind the symbols? Well we're not left to our own devices and to our own understanding and we don't need to just make up some reality to describe the symbols. Rather, John gives us a number of clues and this book, book of Revelation, and in particular Revelation chapter 11 is filled with Old Testament references. And chapter 11 is this is what makes chapter 11 so complex. Is It is so filled with Old Testament allusions. And by the way, then those Old Testament allusions have other Old Testament allusions. And that's what makes it such a complex chapter. Is because you will be chasing down Old Testament references all over the place. But what we will do is we will look at John's use of the Old Testament to understand the symbols that he is talking about. So that we can understand the reality behind it so I'm not just going to make up some sort of symbolic understanding of this and say hey there it is that makes sense to me that sounds good to me John is going to um, refer is going to use Old Testament references to point us to the reality that he's revealing so if we use his references we're going to be able to understand the reality and hence the or the symbolism and hence the reality behind the symbols. I can guarantee you this. As we go through today's lesson, we are going to differ in the details. My notes, which are a little different from yours, say we may differ. No, we will differ. We're going to differ in the details. However, while we may and will differ in the details, I think and I'm pretty certain that we can agree on the main point. And here's the main point. The main point is this that God is going to protect his people against all opposition and they will proclaim his gospel until the kingdom comes. We may differ on some of the details, but the main point is that God is going to protect his people as they proclaim the gospel until the kingdom comes. Now, one more thing, and then we're going to get into it. Some of you are afraid and fearful because we've got three pages of notes today. And you are thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, when we have a page and a half, we're here forever. <laughs> one of the reasons you have three pages of notes is because, as I say, this is a very complex chapter. Another reason you have three pages of notes is because I decided to show you my work. Alright? So when we get into some of this information, they are going to say, How did you get there? I'm showing you my work, and I'm not asking you to simply just trust what I say. I'm going to show you how I got to that place. And I think it makes all kinds of sense. And in fact, it is utterly and completely grounded in Scripture. I am not going to go to the news, and I'm not going to look to historians in the past. I'm going to use John's references to bring us to an answer of what's going on here. So I'm going to show you my work. That's one of the reasons I've loaded it with Scripture. Now, Having said that, there is one place where I am not, I did not show you my work, I'm just going to say, I'm going to state my position, and I'm going to say that's my position. And you'll probably say, I don't know how you got there. The reason I did not show you my work there is because if I did show you my work, this would be about 10 pages of notes, and our sermon would be about four hours, of we got DBSs acting in. There. So you don't have time to sit here through all of that. And um, we can discuss that on Wednesday night, but it is an utterly and completely fabulous um, passage of text, but it does require huge amounts of uh Of diligence to come to an understanding of it. So one area, most of the areas I showed you my work. One area, I'm just going to say this is what I believe, and you can say I think you're nuts. Um, I can explain that later, or you can say you know that makes kind of kind of makes sense. So with that, let's consider some context. Remember chapters eight and eleven, we see the cycle of seven trumpet judgments. that are the result of the prayers of the saints. People pray, and these judgments come. And chapters eight and nine, we see this uh, this great wrath poured out, and that those who are not sealed by God continue to worship um, idols and demons, and they distort and they continue to destroy one another. And so they continue to wage war on one another, and all sorts of horrendous um, terrible things are happening and the scriptures chapter 9 concludes and still they did not repent chapter 10 we saw God we saw John the person who wrote this letter eating the words of God again symbolic he takes in a scroll consumes it it is um, bitter and sweet to the taste it's sweet to the taste but it makes his stomach bitter And uh, then he begins to proclaim, this is talking about how prophets often symbolized eating God's word before they went out and proclaimed it. And so the bittersweet words now are passed on to us, and now we are going to begin to see our marching orders as the church of God and then just a quick preview we are going to see so that's just a little way of review we are going to see as we go through this we're not going to get all the way through chapter 11 today We're just going to take at least two messages maybe three um, but we are going to see that the one of the, the, the crucial elements of chapter 11 are these two witnesses who pro- proclaim God's truth and that culminates with the seventh trumpet blowing and the kingdoms of the earth becoming the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. Two witnesses proclaim the truth until the seventh trumpet blows and the kingdoms of the earth become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. So with that, let's get into our text. There was given to me a measuring rod like a staff and someone said get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. I'm going to stop there and first of all give it a little bit more background. You'll recall that this is, this is during the cycle of trumpet judgments, okay? And you'll recall, hopefully, that previously there was a series of, of seal judgments, right? Remember that? There were seven seal judgments, now there are seven trumpet judgments, and they're going to be upcoming seven bowl judgments, all right? And you'll recall between the sixth and seventh seal, there was an interlude, wasn't there? There was this... You know, seal one, seal two, seal three, four, five, six, and then an interlude. And John describes something, and then the second seal. Well, you know, we shouldn't be too surprised to see that between trumpet one, two, three, four, five, six, and an interlude. In Revelation chapter seven, John described in that interlude between that series of judgment. He described the church on earth, which we have called the church militant, and he described them by by using this this um, this illustration of 144,000 people. And the church we call it the church militant not because you know we're because the church is. Church on earth is the church militant because it is wrestling not against flesh and blood but against principalities and, and powers and rulers in high places. So it is a, a people who are engaged in the battle. That's why we call it the church militant. And we saw that represented by the 144,000. You can go back to those notes of that sermon to get see how I got there. But we also saw another picture of what we call the church triumphant. That's the church in heaven. They're triumphant. Why? Because they're victorious and they are no longer. Waging battle. So, that's in the first interlude. It shouldn't surprise us at all to see that now in the second interlude, John is actually seeing the exact same scene, only he's seeing it described in different terms. Instead of being seen as people either by the number of 144,000 or by an innumerable people. He is now seeing that same scene described by a temple. That is, the church on earth suffers during the time of tribulation while the church in heaven triumphs. And you're probably saying to me, how in the world did you get that? Let me describe how I got there. I'm going to use scripture to interpret scripture. And I'm going to use what I believe are good interpretive skills, just skills that you learn when you are learning to interpret scripture. There are some basic rules that you follow. And I'm going to use those those tools. We see that John has provided a measuring rod and he is commanded to measure the temple and those who worship, but not the court outside the temple. This harkens back to Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48. Remember I told you that Revelation has a lot of Old Testament references. In fact, if you really want to understand the book of Revelation, you need to understand the Old Testament. Those who say the Old Testament isn't relevant today, I would say you can't understand the New Testament if you don't understand the Old Testament and it's very difficult to understand the book of Revelation unless you have a grasp of the Old Testament. So, some of you may not have a grasp of the Old Testament, so I'll try to bring everybody up to speed as quickly as possible. But in Ezekiel chapter, chapter 2 through 3, we see that Ezekiel ate a scroll that was given to him. And then in chapters 40 through 48, he witnessed an angel measuring a temple. Likewise, in Revelation chapter 10, we see John eating a scroll, and then he goes and he measures the temple. So we can see those parallels there. So I believe that the temple here stands or symbolizes the church as the people of God. You're saying, I don't know, it says a temple. How do you get from a temple to the people of God? Seems like it's a temple. Why don't you take it literally? Why is it not a literal temple, either one in the past, like many people would say that this is a reference to The temple that was destroyed in 70 AD um, by Titus. Others would say, no, it's a future temple that's going to be built during the last seven years of human history. I don't think it's either. I think it is a symbolic temple, and I think it's symbolic of the people of God, and here's how I get there. First of all, we need to understand the Bible's theology regarding the temple the biblical theology of the temple is never about a building it is always about God being present with his people you'll recall that when man was created he was placed in Eden and Eden has many temple-like characteristics guys like Desmond Alexander and Stephen Dempster have done a wonderful job of describing how Eden reflects very temple-like qualities but man allowed evil to enter into the temple, succumbed to that evil, and was kicked out, out of the presence of God. Then, we see a tabernacle. And the tabernacle, which represented the, pe- the presence of God, was situated in the midst of the people of God. It was never about the building. It was about God being present with His people. And then, of course, we see a temple actually being Built, um, which reflected the tabernacle. We saw Solomon built a temple, and then that was destroyed. And then, um, in the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, that te- second temple got built, and it was then later called Herod's Temple. But then we see the coming of Christ, and we see that Christ fulfills and replaces all of the temple requirements. Jesus replaces the sacrificial system. Jesus then pours out his spirit and this indwelling spirit makes the church the new people of God or the new temple of God. And the Bible culminates with a new heaven and a new earth presented and is represented by a holy of holies. In the end, we end up back in a temple-like city where God is present and God is God. He is our God and we are his people and we are now in the very presence of God. So, when we look at the whole biblical theology of the temple, and I know I just kind of ran through that, but when we look at the Bible's understanding of the temple, it's not about a building. Buildings were used, just like we use this particular building to, to house the church. And then we might call this the church, but it's, the church is the people. Always, and And so, when we understand the biblical theology regarding the temple, it's about God being present with his people. So we'll start there. We should also note that God's people are referred to in the New Testament as as the temple of God. First Corinthians, let me give you a few passages of scripture I think I wrote them down for you First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 Do you not know that you are a temple of God And that the spirit of God dwells in you If any man destroys the temple of God God will destroy him For the temple of God is holy And that is what you are We see this also in 2 Corinthians six sixteen, But then we'll see it over here in Ephesians Chapter 2, verses 19 through 22 talking about stones and bricks he's talking about you and I being knit together as the temple, the dwelling place of God then we see over in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 but you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ the people of God are the temple of God that's the New Testament. In fact, outside of the Gospel, I think only two references to the Temple refer to Acts building. It always refers to the people of God. So, we look at the broad picture of biblical theology and see that the Temple refers to the presence of God. We see that the New Testament refers to the people of God as the Temple of God. And then, when we look at this word Temple in the book of Revelation, Naos, in Greek, It never refers to a building. It always, without exception, refers to a present heavenly temple or to the temple of God's presence in the age to come. So it never refers to a building in the book of Revelation. And we see this, I think, if you're not certain, this becomes especially clear in Revelation 13.6 where we read that the beast blasphemed God's name and his tabernacle. That is, those who dwell in heaven. So, starting very broad, we look at what is the overall biblical picture of the temple. It is the presence of God. How does the New Testament treat this idea of the temple of God? It's the people of God. And, and who does the spirit of God know? How does the book of Revelation, get it's error or an error, how does the book of Revelation talk about the temple of God? It talks about the presence of it talks about a heavenly temple where God is present with His people, and so to me, I am more persuaded by the idea that the temple here has to refer to not to a literal building, but to the people of God. I think the, the vast majority of biblical evidence is on my side. so there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff and someone said get up the other reason that might clue us off to the fact that this temple that John is to measure is is symbolic and not literal is because he's told to measure the people of God or the people in it or worship you, you don't measure people well I guess you, you could I mean we've got a little measuring chart over here but generally you count people you don't measure them so right off the bat you go "Huh? Oh, there's something up here so I think Well, I know that I am most persuaded by the evidence that this is not a literal temple. And notice how I got there. All I did was look at scripture. What does the scripture say about the temple? What does the book of Revelation say about the temple? The book of Revelation never talks about a temple as a literal building. So that's how I get there. And so measure the temple and the court outside. (coughs) When we're talking about measuring the temple we are seeing that this is referring just like in Ezekiel's um, vision that the measuring of the temple was demonstrating that God is protecting his people and so now measure the temple and the court outside. Remember how the temple was built? You had an inner court and an outer court, didn't you? Yes, you did. The inner court was a place where the priests went, and the outer court was where the worshipers went, basically. All right? The outer court was a place where God-loving people served God, offered sacrifices, worshipped, and the inner temple was a place where the priests went. So now what do we have? We have an inner temple and an outer court. But don't measure the outer court because it's given to the Gentiles and to the nations for 42 months that it'll be trampled underfoot. So, here's what we have. We have the church triumphant and the church militant. We have the church triumphant that is God protecting his people in the inner court, in the inner sanctuary. This is the people of God protecting by God. We also have the church militant, the court outside, that is being trampled underfoot for 42 months. This is the exact same vision that John described over in chapter 7. So we see this consistency. John is just telling us the same story. So we see the church suffering on earth for 42 months when the beast rises up and kills them. They are immediately transferred into the church triumphant and they give praise and glory and honor and dominion to God. And they always win. While they're here on the earth they may suffer but they always win because even if the beast kills them they are immediately ushered into the presence of Christ where they become the church triumphant standing in white robes waving palm branches saying give glory to God and to his Christ. And this goes on for 42 months. And now we have to ask ourselves the question what is this 42 months? Is it literal or symbolic? That's the position I'm going to take. I do not believe that it's a literal 42 months. Surprise, surprise, surprise. But we're going to see this 42 months represented in a number of different ways. We're going to see this 42 months represented as three and a half years, 1,260 days, time, times, and half a time. And all of these refer to the same period. And this takes us back to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Now, this is where I'm not going to show you my work. Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27, for all of you Bible students and all of you students of biblical prophecy, is probably the most complex passage of scripture in all of the Bible. If you don't think so, it's probably because you've never studied with any diligence Duke Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27. It is dense. It is it's three verses. But oh my goodness. And I don't care what position you hold in regards to biblical prophecy. Eventually, you have to deal with Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27. I've been trying to avoid it. I've been really trying to dance around it, kinda of looking over it, standing across it, looking at it from a bird's eye view. Never really wanted to I see it and I run and I go around and I think it's different way. But eventually Daniel chapter 9, 24 to twenty-seven, stands your way and you have to deal with it. I would say, I'm gonna give you my opinion, and you probably many will disagree with my opinion on this. And let me also let me also say that um I'm willing to be convinced otherwise on my view because there is no view of Daniel nine twenty four 24, 27 that I'm completely satisfied with they are all have huge gaping holes in them every view that I've been. and there are probably two dozen different views on at least uh, they all have gaping gaping holes in them including mine I would say, though, if you want to study this passage of scripture, I would, I would recommend, make sure you study the whole chapter, because Daniel 9, 24-27, is part of an answer to a prayer that Daniel prayed in the first part of chapter 9. And Daniel was praying that the end of the exile would come. That the 70 years of the Jews being in exile is coming to an end, and he is praying, Lord, this is coming to an end, and he gets an answer to his prayer. And Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27 is part of the answer to that prayer. So, I believe this is just my, my view of Daniel 9, 24 through 27, that the 42 months that Daniel refers to speaks of the time after Jesus has come to finish transgression put an end to sin atone for wickedness and until the final jubilee is ushered in when Jesus returns again in his second coming so the 42 months is that period of time after Jesus has finished his earthly work and until he comes again that means we're in the 42 months As I said, I can explain my work to you, but we will be here till we'll miss DBS. I think what I would even go further and say, and be a little bit more specific that the 42 months actually begins after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and continues on until Christ returns. So. Here's what we see. Let me kind of put some of this together. What we see is that in Revelation 1 and 2, John sees the church triumphant in terms of the heavenly temple, and he sees the church militant in terms of the outer court that has trampled down for 42 months. That is, until Christ comes again. The church, at various times throughout history, is, is persecuted. You and I have probably never felt this. That's probably why it's so foreign to us. You and I can't relate to this because we have never suffered any kind of persecution. But the church all over the world right now is dying for the sake of Christ. We're the anomaly. I think the days of favorability of the church in our culture, that window is closing quickly. We are losing favor fast. We've been immune from it. That day is closing quick, and maybe one of these days we will be part at of the church militant in the sense of a a very uh, physical type of, uh, of trials. And so, John is saying, listen, what I'm describing to you is not something that's going to happen in the future that you don't need to worry about. I'm not saying that this is something that's happened in the past that is over and done with I'm saying right now whoever reads this book this applies to you You are the people of God. I want you to understand that while you may struggle, trial, and suffer, and face trial and difficulty here on the earth, I want you to understand that the day you breathe your last breath, whether it's because of natural causes, or because the beast rises up, and puts you to death at that moment, you will be ushered into the presence of God, and you will reign with Him. That's John's message to his church. That's why this is such an amazing passage of Scripture, because God is saying to us, folks, Be confident. Go out and do what God has called you to do. Speak the words of Christ. That's what John is doing. He's been given the words of Christ. Now he's speaking the words of Christ for us to take that message and proclaim it and that no matter what comes your way, whether it be blessing or trial, don't let anything deter you. Like I said, we may differ on the details, but the main point holds. And the main point is that God will protect his people against all opposition until they proclaim his, as they proclaim his gospel until the kingdom comes. You may disagree on how I got there, but I think we can agree on that main point. So, now we come to these two witnesses. All kinds of ideas have been put forth on who these two witnesses are. you ever heard of the Muggletonians? The Muggletonians are a UK group that uh, two guys showed up in their church back in the 18th century and uh, one, of the, one of the guys' last name is Muckleton, and they claim to be two witnesses and their whole movement so They still exist. People all over the place claim to be these two witnesses. So who are these two witnesses? Do you think I'm going to take this literally or symbolically? What do you think? Yeah. Don't know, okay. I'm going to take it symbolically. Once again, I do not believe these are two literal individuals. I do not believe they're fire on mask. I believe that these are symbolic. I believe... A couple of things we want to get prepare ourselves, John's now shifting to these two witnesses. And what these witnesses do is they preach the gospel to the nations, and they do so at a great cost to themselves. In fact, they end up dying as a result of their preaching of God's word. And we shouldn't be surprised that throughout the Bible, God has called us to be his people and to be his witnesses. We should also be very keen to the Old Testament imagery that is, that is provided for us and not neglect it. Once again, we need to understand the Old Testament in imagery. And the Old Testament imagery comes from Zechariah 4, two olive trees that fire... From 2 Kings chapter 1, 9-12 Where Elijah uh, calls down fire from heaven No rain Where Elijah ceases the rain um, and For three and a half years In 1 Kings uh, chapter 17-1 And Moses is turning water to blood In Exodus chapter 7-12 So we have these Four references um, referring to these two witnesses and I have a feeling that if we look closely at the Old Testament illusions, we're going to get a very clear idea of what these two witnesses are doing and who they are so these are my witnesses so I assume that the one speaking here is Christ and I believe that this, these two witnesses represent the church on earth during the tribulation who will proclaim the gospel And by the way, let me clarify that I do not consider the tribulation the last seven years of human history. I consider, as the Bible very clearly says, that this is the tribulation. I believe that there will come a time of intense tribulation towards the end. Certainly, I think that. But the Bible is also very clear that right now, today, we are in the tribulation. So, these are, this is the church on earth during the 42 months. Um, who saying the gospel So let's look at their description And then see if The description supports What I'm saying First of all they're called um, They're two witnesses So we ask ourselves why two witnesses Again numbers in Revelation are symbolic and we know that you need two witnesses, why? To confirm the authority and the veracity of any message, right? If a judgment was brought, how many witnesses did you need? You need two or three. And throughout the Bible, two witnesses verify something. So whatever it is they're saying, this is, a ver- this is to tell us that this is a verified message. And then we see them described as two olive trees and two lampstands. And I'm not going to go back to Zechariah, but you should read Zechariah 4. Do you get an understanding of this? Where in Zechariah 4, we see two olive trees standing beside one lampstand that feeds the oil to it. The olive trees in Zechariah are described as the two sons of oil. That's actually the literal translation. And they are anointed with the Spirit to rebuild the temple. So in Zechariah, these two olive trees refer... I think the context tells us that they refer to Zerubbabel who was the governor at the time and to Joshua who was the priest. Zerubbabel was commissioned to build the temple and Joshua was the one commissioned to lead the people in worship. And the two olive trees that are identified in Zechariah I believe are the governor the one who builds the temple, and the one who calls the people to worship. And if you'll recall, in Zechariah, Zechariah is a wonderful book. But remember they rebuilt the temple? And when they rebuilt it, it was really small. It wasn't like a glorious temple of Solomon. When Solomon built his temple, it was amazing. But this one was really small. People lamented and said, Oh, you know, we remember before the morning how great Solomon's temple was. It was so amazing. Look at this tiny little thing here. We're just exiles who had no power, no authority. How are we ever going to get this thing built without? And he's telling us that this will never work and that, you know, we don't have the resources, all of these things. And this is where God calls Zerubbabel and Joshua to build temple and to fill the temple and to lead worship and he says see here's the thing, it's not by might and it's not by power, it's by my spirit says the Lord that I'm going to build my temple it's not by all of you, it's not Solomon's glory, it's not his wealth, it's none of that I'll build my temple and I'll use you exile Zerubbabel and I'll use you exile unclean, sinful Joshua to do my work. Because it's not going to come about because of your great efforts. It's going to come about because I do it. And I'll make its glory great. And so they are going to build the temple, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so I think what we have is these two witnesses who are building the temple of God, being called of God. How? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. It is the church calling people to worship. You might say, well, how come there's two lampstands? Because in Zechariah, there's only one lampstand. I think the answer is found in the book of Revelation. What do lampstands refer to in the book of Revelation? Churches. There were seven churches, weren't there? How many pure churches that did not compromise or fall short of the glory of God and were faithful to the message of God? Two churches. This is the church, this is the faithful, pure, undefiled church calling the people, calling people to worship and building the kingdom of God until He comes again, proclaiming the gospel, until Christ comes again. How? Not by might or by power, but by my spirit. So, these witnesses represent the blameless church who proclaim the gospel building, the gospel building, I'm sorry, who proclaim the gospel, they build the temple of God by the power of the Spirit. How did I get there? I just used the references that John gave us. But what about these other references? Oh, this is going to get good. Do you have a few minutes? But it says that they can fall, call down fire from heaven. I, I don't think there's going to be two people calling down fire from heaven. I could be wrong. I'm willing to be wrong, but I think I'm, I'm more persuaded by the fact of this. This point is back to Elijah, who did what? Called down fire from heaven. Which did what? It demonstrated that God is the authority. That God. That Elijah was proclaiming the message of God, and if you don't believe me... I have God on my side, and He poured down fire from heaven. These are people who are God. This, this church is God authorized. This says they're able to shut the sky, power to shut the sky. Wow, that also goes back to the time of Elijah. He shut the sky, and he shut the sky from rain. Because, and what that ended up doing was it demonstrated to the king Ahab that Ahab's idols were of no value and that God is the authority on earth. God is sovereign over all things and that all of your idols are vain idols, Ahab. And then finally we see this ministry of Moses by turning rivers to blood, turning rivers to blood. The plagues that came through Moses brought Egypt to his knees and eventually liberated the people of God from bondage. So let's put all of this together. Folks, I want you to understand the church has the ability to liberate people from bondage to experience a new exodus. So I'm going to put all of this together. These two witnesses. I guess it could be two people actually preaching in the, in the streets one day who get killed and raised up to heaven. Or, I think even more glorious, and in line with everything that scripture has to say, it is this. The olive tree symbolizes the spirit of power the church. The fire that consumes and informs us that God protects His people, His church, and that the power that shuts the sky tells us that Yahweh is the one and only God, and that the plagues demonstrate that the church a, has the ability to liberate people from bondage. That is an amazing, glorious passage of Scripture. And how do we do it? By might? By power? By the Spirit? <laughs> folks, We as the people of God will continue to minister as the church of God until Christ returns. I want you to understand you're you're empowered by the very Holy Spirit of God that Jesus sent after His ascension. That God protects you. Even protects you. I, I don't know that God's going to protect you from physical suffering. I can't tell you that because I see through the Bible that the people of God have always suffered. Here's what I can tell you, that even if you do suffer physically at the hands of whatever, that on the day you breathe your last breath, you will be the victor. You will win, because God protects his people. And here's what else I'm going to tell you. That God is the only true God, that there are no others, that everything else is an idol, and it will not deliver you. But we have the truth, the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ that will deliver people from bondage. That's what's going on, and this is applicable to you and me right now. It is not limited to somebody in the future. It is not limited to the past. This is a message that you and I need to know when we go out those doors. We need to see when you are speaking BBS this evening and over to the course of this week. We need to understand that I am preaching the God-honoring. God authorized. You can't do anything to me. Gospel of Jesus Christ will deliver you from bondage and bring you to, to my So, I'll conclude with this: Do you know this power? Do we understand what it means to be the Church of the Living God? I think sometimes we miss it. What makes a church potent? What makes it powerful? does money make us potent? It's nice. I want to thank you for all for your faithfulness and giving. But that's not what makes us potent. There are plenty of very very wealthy churches that are utterly dead. How about influence? Maybe if we can get enough politicians on our side to, to amend the laws and to change things so that everything is able to. Well, I that um, righteousness exalts a nation. But I'll tell you this. But that's not what makes a church potent. In fact, one of the most potent churches right now is in China, and they are suffering for the cause of Christ. They don't have money, and they don't have any influence whatsoever, but they are turning the world upside down. Marketing. If we just had a better marketing campaign, a slicker online presence, then we would. And you know, we had fog machines and lights, and you know, I keep pushing for a retractable roof. One of these days, we'll see a retractable roof. And just, if we just had that, and we could market it, people would come and love our church. Maybe. The thing that makes us potent is that we are empowered by the very spirit of God. Have you believed in the message of the spirit and power of church of God that you can be delivered from the power of the bondage of sin and become part of God's protected people and experience the very power of God to go out and that no matter what happens to you, one day you will breathe your last breath and you will be raised to new life? Do you believe that? Have you never ever understood that power? Today, I think your bulletin says today is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. That's what I'm saying to you. And finally, church, this is to us as a church. Church on Randall Place. This is what God has for us. To be indwelt, empowered by the Spirit, protected to proclaim the good news that saves, and that slaves might be set free. All through the message of the gospel that John was called to eat and that he proclaimed, and he proclaimed it to us for the purpose of us taking and passing on to others. This is a message that has eternal relevance. It is not relevant to one particular age or the next. It is relevant for you and me right now, today. Let us be the church of the living God and let us proclaim the gospel until he comes again. Let's stand in this pray.